Good morning, Cornerstone. How was everybody's turkey day? Julie and I had the privilege of being hosted by Steve and Kathy on Thursday, and instead of a turkey, we had prime rib. And I don't know whether the Puritans had prime rib, but I was certainly thankful to the Lord for cows on Thanksgiving Day. So, you know, it's interesting to look at the history of of Thanksgiving. I was unaware of it until I did some research this week that it is actually a Protestant and Puritan tradition that in England in the 17th century, some of you may know this, the Puritans began to really want to move away from the idolatry of the Catholic Church and the Church of England. And there were feast days being held throughout the year in honor of all these different saints. And it became almost like pagan rituals where you would celebrate and honor a particular saint on that feast day in order to merit their goodness and their favor. And so it was very much a distortion eventually of the gospel and very much a cultural Christianity. And we see that in the history of the church, we have never been free of the vice of a cultural Christianity that creeps in and distorts the gospel. And so the Puritans at that time decided to do away with most of the feast days, and they decided to have two separate times designated as times to come together and to celebrate. One was a time for fasting during times when they believed that God's judgment was firm and hard upon the land and they needed to come together and pray and focus on the Lord. And the other was a season or a feast of celebration and thanksgiving where they would gather together and celebrate God's goodness, his providence, his kindness from Christ and his protection and his provision for them. And of course, as the Puritans emigrated to America, some on the Mayflower and then some with subsequent immigration, uh, migration, I guess, to America during those different times, that celebration of thanksgiving to the Lord for his special grace and his providence to them at distinct times became a tradition that came to America by by way of the Puritans. Of course, all the different stories that we hear about, about the Indians bringing corn on the first feast day and being thankful for the Lord's provision and survival during that first winter uh, for the Mayflower, but ultimately then uh, Abraham Lincoln during a time of war and during a time of strife and during a time during the Civil War was the first one to formalize Thanksgiving as a day that would be nationalized where all the states would celebrate it on the same day for the sake of unity. And I think it's interesting and it will pertain to our text today, the issues of division, the issues of conflict, the issues of Thanksgiving, and the issues of unity. And at the heart of that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I think it's appropriate that this day on a Thanksgiving Sunday that we have an opportunity to come and hear about the Lord's Supper from 1 Corinthians 11, and then celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And I think it is most appropriate at this special time in Cornerstone's history and with James and our tents to have a final time together with him that we at the end will be able to gather as one family together under Christ and to celebrate this Lord's Supper together. So turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 11. First Corinthians 11, the title of our ser- sermon today is Remembering Christ Rightly. We're taking a little bit of a departure from First Peter in honor of the Lord's Supper today. First um, Corinthians 11 is a uh, text that is commonly used for communion. And many times when we gather, the words that are said in the celebration of the communion service are taken directly from First Corinthians 11 as Paul shepherds the Corinthian church 
on how to rightly remember Christ and how to rightly celebrate communion. Uh, but the truth of the matter is it's very seldom that people look at the wider context of why Paul needed to write this letter and why Paul needed to contain this section to the Corinthian church over the issue of thanksgiving to Christ and celebrating the Lord's Supper. So let's have a look at that, and we will start reading in verses 17, and we will go down to all the way till the end, to 34. And after I read, what I will do is I will pray after the Scripture to ask for the Lord's work in our hearts and our minds that we might hear what He has for us from His Word. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it, for there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world." So then, my brethren, <coughs> excuse me, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for everything that the Lord's Supper represents, that we of all people this weekend have every reason and more reason than the rest of the world to give thanks, to give thanks to you that you came from your kingdom and your throne and glory and you came to earth and you lived as a man and you lived a hard and difficult life on our behalf and you were subject, Lord, to all the discrimination, rejection and inhumanities that this world could offer and you did so on our behalf for sinners who did not love you, for sinners who were hostile to you, for sinners who wanted nothing to do with you or with God, your Father, or with your glory. And yet, Lord Jesus, 
our reaction and our response and our sin did not deter you. You came regardless, and you loved us, Lord Jesus, and you died for us on the cross, and the Lord raised you on the third day, and you endured all these things in perfect obedience to the will of the Father for the purpose of securing a people for yourself who would be free from sin and for the purpose that there would be a community that would be holy, separate unto you, that might be children of grace, children of responsibility, holy children, Lord, who might come and be one people, one people united in you because your spirit is present in each one and that the bond that unites us is greater than anything the world could offer. Lord, for this and for all these things that we have received, we thank you. And yet we come to you as a people and ask for forgiveness, for certainly, Lord, we fall short in so many different ways. We, like the Corinthian church, how often do we think of our own matters and our own concerns rather than the others? And how often do we fail to wait for others, be it our wives, our children, our families, our co-workers, Lord, those who are not saved, those who are in need, Lord. And so for these things, we come to you as a people, Lord, and ask for forgiveness for this, Lord. And we ask, Lord, that this day we would hear what you have from your word for us and that we would see the bright path that's lit, Lord, that the opportunity we have to remember you rightly and to remember everything that you represent, everything that the cross represents, Lord, is our path to unity in you, a path to repentance and a path to glory that overcomes our greatest sins and our greatest shortcomings and our greatest divisions. Lord Jesus, because of this certain hope that we have in you, we thank you and rejoice in you and ask that this morning your would go, would go forth, not ours. In your name we pray, amen. As we look at the book of 1 Corinthians in the context of Paul writing to them and giving them instruction on the Lord's Supper, we have to see the wide context of the letter, Paul's epistle to the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church is a church that is very special and close to the heart of Paul. Paul, God used Paul to found this church. This was a church that was almost started from scratch as Paul went there. And the first believers in that, that city and the community that rose up were a direct connection to Paul's ministry at that church. And Paul, as he writes this letter, is not in Corinth. He is in Ephesus, we believe, at around 55 A.D. And he has received reports from Chloe's people and perhaps from others, letters coming in saying that this church, which is very much like his child, that all is not well. It is a house divided. And I think all of us would do well to read Corinthians from beginning to end, especially at this unique season as we're transitioning and we're going through this time when James is leaving. And it's a time of introspection, a time of thought of where we've been, where we're at, and where we're going. And the book of 1 Corinthians is very appropriate in many ways. We think of 1 Corinthians so often because 1 Corinthians 13 is spoken and read at every wedding. And it's this point of love, you know, and we think about love and, and the high-mindedness. We think of it sometimes in terms of gifts and tongues which are addressed. But so often we fail to see the bigger picture. And the bigger picture with 1 Corinthians is unity. Unity in Christ, because the church at Corinth is a divided church. It is a church that is riddled with factions, and it is a church that is riddled with schisms. And as we look at the first two chapters of Corinth and the book, the epistle to the Corinthians, as we look at those first two chapters, Paul gives a big picture outline of where the rest of this book is going, and he gives us a big picture of divisions and factions in the church. 
And the connection here is that there are problems in the way the Lord's Supper is being handled and participated in because there are divisions and disunity in the church that our disunity and disruption in the way we interact with God affects how we interact with one another. And we know that on a regular basis, right? We go through those periods and times that are spiritually dry, we're busy, our devotional time is low, our prayer time is low, and we're struggling and we're being bombarded with 20 different conflicts on the work front, on sleep, on dealing with sick children, and, and what happens? Is it any surprise that we find that there can be conflict in the home, stress, unkind words that happen between husband and wives or parents or children during that time? And we think it's because of the circumstance, because we're struggling, because we're tired, because we're being pressed on all sides. But Paul makes this point in Corinthians that really there are no excuses. The heart of the issue is really our relationship with Christ. And when our relationship with Christ suffers, our relationship with one another suffers. And at the heart of the issue in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, is the issue of idolatry. That at the heart of every division and faction, be it in our home, with our co-workers, or in a Bible study, or in a church at large, is the issue of an idolatry, where there is something that we are worshiping in place of Christ. And what Paul specifies in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 for the Corinthian church, a church which was at one time incredibly financially prosperous, and yet at the same time had a cross-section of people from every socioeconomic level. And so it was filled with wealthy folks, and it was also filled with slaves, and it was filled with multi, a multi-ethnic community as well. And the point that Paul brings is, it's not an issue that I'm a Jew or you're a Greek. It's not an issue that I'm a man or you're a woman. It's not an issue of the famine that's happening in the land. The issue at heart here in the church at Corinth is that there is an idolatry with the wisdom of men an idolatry of the wisdom of men that causes them to be enamored with all things that pertain to this world and at the same time a despising and rejection of the wisdom of the cross. That's 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. And if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, this will give you an overview and a context of what Paul's addressing in his discussion of the Lord's Supper. In verse 10, he says, in 1.10, he says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I, have a, I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And then when you go on, basically, to chapter 2, he talks about saying in 2.6, yet we do speak Wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So Paul and 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 is painting this picture. There's the wisdom of the world and there's the wisdom of the cross. And if you embrace the wisdom of the world, you are going to be crucifying Christ and his people and rejecting them. But if you're worshiping the wisdom 
of the cross, you are united with Christ and you will die like Christ and you will give of yourself for the body. And the unity of the Spirit will be there and the unity in Christ will be there. And he's painted this picture on two sides. And he's showing the Corinthian church, look, this is the reason that there's division among you. And he walks through all the different questions and all the different sources of division and factionalism in that church. And once we get to 11, we get to the issue of the Lord's Supper. And at the heart of the issue is this, who are we remembering when we gather together as a people? Are we remembering men and the things of men? Or are we remembering Christ, his cross, and the things of Christ? That's always at the heart of the issue, quite frankly, of every conflict and every division that we have. And so as we come to 1 Corinthians 11, Paul opens in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11. And what does he say as far as his report that he's heard about how they celebrate the Lord's Supper and his opinion? He says to them, I do not praise you. I do not praise you. I do not commend you. I don't compliment you, and I don't approve. What is it that puts Paul in this situation that he does not approve of their gathering together as a fellowship? He says it very clearly in verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part There were rumors, and there was feedback, and Paul was not quick to judge and come down hard, but he says, look, this is happening, and from everything I've heard in reports, it doesn't surprise me that as you gather together for the love feast and the celebration of the Lord's Supper, that there's division among you, and the word that he uses for division is one that you're familiar with. It's it's schismata, from which we get the term schism or division. And the notion with that is the idea of a piece of fabric. And I'm going to show you. It's like a piece of fabric which is torn, all right, and is ragged and is hard to put together again. It's an illustration from fabric and from the merchant place as far as the nature of that division, that that basically community in Corinth had been torn apart. And Paul cannot commend it. But then he says that there's something interesting. He says, which is a bit of a twist on this. He says, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And when he says there must be, he uses the term day, which we talked about in Matthew. When, Paul, when Peter comes to Jesus and Jesus says to the disciples, I believe it was in Matthew 16, that it is necessary that the Son of Man go to Jerusalem and be crucified. And Peter objected to that. And the idea of it is necessary or it is must, the the term must, Jesus was referring to a divine necessity. He's referring to something that is part of God's plan. So we look at this and he's saying, I don't commend you. I hold you responsible that this is not praiseworthy or pleasing. And yet at the same time, factions are necessary. He goes on to explain this. And it gives us great insight into the nature of factions and divisions. Let's look at this first. Why does Paul not praise them as far as factions and divisions? It's obvious, right? Two kids can't get along. Are we going to praise them and compliment them in our family? Probably not. But more often than not, in my situation, I just want peace in the home and peace in the drive there, right? But when we look at the issue of schismata, and the other word that comes from these is heresy, 
which was also a term for division. We see that it's got a very big biblical context. And the biblical context that's given for the idea of division is that division is something that comes from the world. And unity is something that comes from Christ and God. And that division is a fruit of the flesh, whereas unity and everything that comes with it is the fruit of the Spirit. Turn with me, if you will, to Galatians 5. Something that's familiar. 5.16. Paul, the same author, talking to the Galatians, who are also dealing with division and strife over doctrine. And he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, and here we go, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Paul is completely consistent, whether we're looking at Galatians or Corinthians. And the issue with divisions and strife is that it comes from the world and it comes from below. It's the wisdom of the world which comes from Satan himself. Whereas the wisdom that comes from above, James talks about, is a wisdom of Christ that brings unity and brings all the fruit of the Spirit. And so this is the reason that Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, I do not praise you. Because as you go through 1 Corinthians, there basically you go through the fruits uh, of the flesh, basically the works of the flesh in in Galatians 5, and the, the Corinthian church checked off on all of them. And they were importing all of these things into every activity of church that they gathered together, especially the Lord's Supper, where there was carousing, there was drunkenness, there was strife, there was a lack of self-control. There were all of these things that were happening. And Paul holds them accountable, like a father should. And yet, on the other hand, he says this interesting twist, but I believe that factions are necessary among you. What's he saying there? When he says, for there must be factions among you, he's pointing to the fact that what we talked about last week, that there is a sovereign plan that God allows, not just allows, that he ordains that there will be divisions and factions in the church. How could a good God do that? And we talked about that last week. Jesus, when he talked to the disciples and he prepared them for his departure and talked about the kingdom, he made the point to them that in God's kingdom, wheat will be planted, but Satan will come in and he will sow tares or weeds among them. And in time, they will grow up together. But the Lord is not going to come early and weed them out, but he will wait till they're full grown, until the fruit is sown. And then at the end, he will divide between the two. That God, in his infinite wisdom, for reasons sometimes that we cannot understand, he has allowed 
the church to be filled with true believers and those who are not true believers. And time will bear that out as far as where that will stand. And in this situation, Paul is saying that the Lord, in his infinite wisdom, has ordained the fact that there would be divisions, that there would be false teachers, that there would be conflict, and that there would be strife, intentionally for the purpose of revealing within the church who are the approved workmen and who are not the approved workmen. And I think you'll agree with me that there's never anything more revealing to what's in a person's heart than during a time of conflict. If I have a disagreement with Julie or if I have a disagreement with my parents, the real test of what's inside is what comes out during that time. The test is not when everything's going well and everybody's sitting around the Thanksgiving dinner table and everybody's talking about the subjects that I want to talk about and everybody's agreeing with what I want to agree with and everybody's doing everything that I want and the world revolves around me. In biblical counseling, they use this illustration of a sponge and they say, we can make excuses for how we reacted or what we did and we could say it was because I was up all night or it's because I had two difficult children who were screaming all the time. But the truth is we are sponges and at the time that that sponge is squeezed, what comes out is basically what's been inside that sponge all the time. And schisms and divisions and conflicts in the church do exactly that. What comes out during those times? Is it the fruit of the Spirit? Is it love, joy, peace, self-control, gentleness, and kindness? Or is it strife, envy, jealousy, bitterness, anger? And when those things happen, the cards come out in the tabletop very, very quickly from top to bottom. And it becomes very clear what's in a person's heart. And it becomes very clear within a community what is the idolatry that's there that's stirring these things up and stirring up these divisions. And for the Corinthian church, it was really an enamorment with their society, with rhetoric, with wisdom, with all the things of Greek society that were placed in high esteem, and they were bringing these things in. And the result of that was that they were distorting the gospel and that they were preaching perhaps a true gospel, but the gospel that they were living out among themselves was a different gospel. And how often that can, can that be? I, I can attest to that very much so. You know, in my own home, my family, I can come up and preach a sermon, then I can go home and have a difficult night or something's hard, and I can come in and I can basically be cranky and irritable and be ungenerous and unkind, and it's like, you know, why, why are all my textbooks all over the place? Because my son has come in and... and pull them all off the shelf and they're everywhere and where was my wife and all of these different things that come out and what's coming out of my heart? An idolatry of self? A desire that the world would work in the way that I want it to? And Paul says that this is not praiseworthy and Paul says, you know what? The Lord allows and ordains challenges, difficulties and even conflict in our lives, in our homes, in our churches for the purpose out of love to shepherd us, to expose those who are zoned what's in our hearts so that we can see what's there and we can see our need for a Savior and allow Him to come in and shepherd us and for Christ to ascend to the throne in areas in our hearts that we've been hanging on tightly to in our blind spots and in our pride to say, no, Lord Jesus, you can have 75% of my heart, but this 25%, you know, my office being in order, this is the one that I really want to hang on to whatever it is. And actually, 
It's an actual act of grace and mercy that the Lord allows these things to happen because it's part of his pruning season where he comes in and prunes us and allows us to graft into the vine and allows us to come and seek the forgiveness that we need so that the joy of our salvation can be returned to us. God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Paul says, I can't praise you for this, and that was the reason why. But Paul also says that it's necessary that God is in the process of refining and approving and setting straight who are his and who are walking in the flesh and who are walking in the spirit. But then he takes us in verse 20 and 22 and outlines exactly for us within the Corinthian church what was that behavior that was unworthy of praise? What did it look like? And he talks about them gathering together in verse 20 and 22 as they met together. And what was happening is they would have a communal love feast and they would say, we'll celebrate communion at the end. We'll gather together, we'll have this feast together, and we'll celebrate communion at the end of that time. But what was happening was the wealthy and the rich people were showing up early. And the poor people were able to only come late. And what happened at Corinth in the socioeconomic area is that there was great prosperity because it was a merchant and trading place where there was a lot of money passing hands. So there were communities of people who had incredible amounts of money. And yet at the same time, in the Greek states and the Roman provinces, there were multiple famines in the land happening at different series and different times. And grain prices were shooting up to incredible amounts. And so the wealthy were able to afford and still make it through and still pay but the poor people barely had enough to scrape by. And as they gathered to these feasts, understandably, the wealthy probably were able to show up early and be there. And they would gather together with their friends and they would bring the best food because this for them was a celebration or a party or fellowship. And here's a situation where fellowship superseded the word of God, a continual conflict that we, every church struggles with. Fellowship has its place. Time together has its place. Relationships have its place. But at the point that it is taking the place of Christ and his word, we are idolaters. And this was happening in Corinth. And they were gathering, gathering together and celebrating. And they were eating the best food and eating the best wine. And the poor people who likely had to work all day and were unable to make it until very late when they showed up, the vast majority of the food was eaten some commentators suspect that these folks who were the poor people had to eat in a different part of the house and there was barely anything left by the time it came to the Lord's Supper. What was happening here? Paul says in verse 22, he says, by you allowing this to happen, you are despising the church of God. They had lost that sight that how we treat one another, how we treat a child of God, when Jesus says, even someone who gives a cold cup of water in my name to one of these little ones, right? He talks about how we treat one another. And when he confronts Paul on the road to Damascus, Paul, who has been persecuting the church and has been taking Christians and locking them up in jail and getting them ready to receive punishment in the early days of the church, he says to Paul what? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute who? Me. How we treat our wives, how we treat our children, how we treat one another, if the Spirit of God is there and we're one family, 
and we are each members of the temple of God, and God is building us together, and what the church is is a group of living temples and stones that come together, and we are united by the Spirit of God, and we're one body in Christ. What I do to the other, I'm doing directly to the whole church, and I'm doing directly to Christ. The Corinthian church had lost sight of this because of their enamorment with the things of the world and their idolatry of the world. And in doing this, they were despising Christ. They were despising one another. They were despising the body of Christ. And even more so, as Paul points out, they were indulging in behavior that even the world outside looked down on, that even secular communities focus on unity, even private corporations focus on unity, even our workplaces focus on unity, even our nation talks about bipartisan politics and the two sides coming together for the good of the country. And so the world looks on this and says, this is a joke and this is a sham. You preach one thing, but you're living something else. And after establishing their behavior, Paul points to one thing in the beginning and then he'll point to one thing in the other. The aspect of the behavior that he nails for them, which is an expression of their idolatry, is their failure to wait for one another. Their failure to wait for one another. We're going to pick that up a little bit later, but I want you to footnote that for the moment. Paul, after he has come with hard words to them, in verses 23 and 26, then comes to the Lord's Supper. And we see how Paul addresses this. What is the remedy for the division? What is the remedy for idolatry? What is the remedy for people who are gathering together, who are very quick to remember themselves, their own concerns, the things that are important to them, to remember the things of the world? The remedy is to remember Christ rightly. And so what Paul sees fit to do and what he sees is necessary for them is he's got to bring them back to teaching that they've already had. Things that they were taught when Paul was with them, but sin has blinded them to and has distorted. A true gospel which started, which ultimately gets distorted. And how often and how true is that in each of our lives individually? We start, well, I want to go to the workplace. I want to be a bright light for Christ. I want to honor him. I want to make him my priority, and if blessing comes in the job, that's great. But as time goes on and the month goes on and, and we get further and further away and we get enmeshed in everything that the world is all about, where does that sit and where does that stand? And ultimately, we find ourselves making decisions and having actions that reflect more the workplace than they do Christ our Lord in that scenario and situation. And we need to be brought back, and it's the reason why we gather together, and it's one of the reasons we celebrate the Lord's Supper, is so we can come back and come to His Word, and that's why we need the Word, and that's why we need one another. That's why in Hebrews, he says to a church that is basically falling apart under persecution, he says, forsake not the assembly of believers, but come together so that you can do what? Stir one another up to love and good deeds and hold fast the true confession because we're sinners and we're not big enough to go against the world on our own. And we need Christ, we need his word, we need his spirit, and guess what? We need one another to come alongside in our different gifts and the different way the Lord has provided for us to help one another to be united and to remember first things first and to remember to do things rightly. And this is what Paul is doing for them. And so as he comes to 23 and 26, he comes back to the basics. And he starts with how the Lord's Supper is to be celebrated in contrast to how it has been celebrated. 
And he opens it by saying, I give to you what I myself received. I give to you what I received, what I received directly from the Lord. And what he opens with that statement is that the entirety of the Lord's Supper is about something that's given, not something that's taken. Something that's given and not taken. So often in conflict, it's about taking and not giving. And not enough to go around. And an impatience and not, not a willingness to wait. And yet the whole idea of Christ coming and the whole gospel is about Christ giving of himself to us. And the Lord's Supper was a gift of grace. And anything that Paul has to give them, it's only what he himself has received. And then he walks them through exactly what he was given. The same thing that we read in the Gospels and the same thing that Jesus enacted on that first night. He says that the Lord Jesus, in verse 23, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Each aspect of the Lord's Supper is broken into two parts. The first part is what the Lord has done for you, what he has given. It is the gospel. But the second part is also the gospel. The second is the point of what we are to do to participate with Christ in faith by obedience to receive that. And Jesus is saying on the night that he's betrayed, this is my, this is my body. The body in the biblical text is a reference to the entirety of a person's life. It's the incarnation. It's the life that Jesus dwelt here with flesh and blood. It is the whole aspect of him leaving his throne of glory and leaving all the comforts of his heavenly kingdom to come and live in a little dirt bowl called Nazareth, to grow and labor as a carpenter's son under heavy labor, to come and live with all the difficulties that were there, to suffer, to be rejected, to be thirsty, to be hungry, to go with evenings without sleep, to suffer, and ultimately to have his body beaten and bruised, spat upon, tortured, bled, and ultimately crucified and ultimately destroyed. Why? For you. For you. For me. For each one of us because of our sin. So that there could be a lamb who would be slain for us. And similarly, he comes as well and talks about the cup. And he says in verse 25, in the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The cup is a symbol in the Bible for the wrath of God. When you go through the Old Testament, God talks about judgment against sinful people. And he talks about the pouring out of that cup. And that those he will judge will have to drink that cup to its very dregs and its very bottom. Which means God's holy justice is going to be completed in full. He is a just God. He is a fair God. We are guilty, and he is not going to withhold punishment. He is not going to let the rapist go free. He is not going to let the person who is stealing go free. These are things that are sins in the eyes of the Lord, and he is a holy God, and he will judge. And he will pour that cup out to the fullest because he is good and right and just. But what's the good news? The good news is that Christ was the one who drank that cup on your behalf and mine. And the blood that was shed was not your blood and my blood. It was the blood of Christ, his life, violently taken and shed for you and for me and because of our sins. 
If that isn't good news, I don't know what there is. And so Paul shepherds them and says, remember the words of Christ and what's the second half? This is what Christ has given to you. We're to do this in remembrance, not of me, not of Cornerstone Bible Church, not of our community, not of our fellowship, but we're to do this in remembrance of him. And the idea of remembrance in the Bible, both Old Testament and New, is not just a recall of information, but the idea of remembrance is that remembrance is about love. Who we remember and who we remember rightly, we love rightly. It's the reason why we celebrate Thanksgiving, to remember the things that the Lord has given us and to remember Him rightly. But it's the reason we celebrate wedding anniversaries. It's the reason we're celebrating this moment today, together as a family, after in the family hour. If I for, I've told, used this illustration countless times, Julie will probably tell me you're beating it into the, you're beating a dead horse. But you know, if we forget our wedding anniversaries, men, how have we loved our wives? When we forget, forgetfulness is about apathy. Forgetfulness is about indifference. Forgetfulness is really about low regard, and ultimately it's about hate. Remembering and remembering rightly is about love. And so what the Lord's Supper is about is an opportunity for us to celebrate the gospel, to celebrate the grace that's been given, to celebrate the new life in Christ. And even more so, we are given the opportunity to participate in that celebration and that grace. How? By remembering Christ rightly for everything that he has done for us and for everything that he is, the Son of God and the Christ, not just a prophet or a man who spoke good terms or who gave us a book for which we could come together in fellowship. And then Paul closes this aspect, and Jesus does, when he says, Every time you do this, what? You proclaim my death until I come. Friends, as believers, what we live or die by is the life and death and resurrection of Christ. There's nothing else that gives us life. It's great that we have Bible studies. It's great, you know, that we have different events. It's great that we have prayer meetings. It's great that we have all manner of different services and all manner of different reasons to come together. And a Bible study is wonderful and we need to be there and we need to hear from the word of the Lord. But if you separate any of this from the death of Christ, from the cross, from the fact that Christ was the Lamb of God who was slain for us and that we stand here today and we are free from our sins and we do not have to drink that cup and when judgment day comes the Lord will separate us and we will not receive the full wrath of his fury. It's because of the death that he died on the cross and that God raised him on the third day. And if we forget that, we might as well throw everything else out. And quite frankly, when we look at that, we can basically say the greater part of American evangelicalism is a cultural Christianity that has missed the point and is busy with many things, politics, social time, family values, they're worthless because Christ did not come to give us family values. Christ came to save sinners of whom I, and I would say many of us together, are chief among them. And when we lose sight of that, then we're in the zone of pride and arrogance and self-righteousness, and we are directly on the path to division.
Paul comes and adds basically in verses 27 and 34 that we need to take this incredibly seriously. He says a man must examine himself in light of this. That what you're participating in in the Lord's Supper is you're participating in something very, very, very significant. We are coming together in unity with the body of Christ. And if we come to the cup and we come to the bread in an unworthy manner in 27, we will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So what does Paul shepherd us and counsel us to do? He says in verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What's it mean that we come together and eat and drink not discerning the body? that we fail to realize that Christ is present here with us. We are not a group of people who just gather together on a Sunday. Our belief is that Christ is risen. Our belief is that we live as children of the new covenant. Our belief is that the cross actually accomplished something. And as we gather together here, it's not Mark Chin and Julie Hong and Paul and everybody out, Miriam, it, Kelly. It's not just individual people. That The Spirit of God is actually here present among us. He sees what we do. He hears what we say. He witnesses what's in our heart. He sees how we interact with one another. Nothing goes past his vision. And what we do and what we say and how we treat one another is how we are treating Christ and how we are treating the Spirit of God and how we interact with the least among us is how we treat Christ. It's the reason we have the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's not just interacting with people we like. It's not just interacting with people who agree with us. It's not even interacting with people who don't sin against us. Because we're a group of sinners gathered together, and sooner or later, like a marriage, like a family, sin is going to be there. I'm going to sin against every one of you. I promise you that. I'll bet on that. If there were odds at Vegas, I'd bet my mortgage on that. Because I'm a sinner, and I would win big on that. Okay? We're going to sin against each other. Fortunately, Christ has provided us with a way but when we do not remember him rightly and we do not remember the cross, then we're on our own. And when we do that, we are not remembering the significance of the body of Christ, what it is. And we think of it as just a group of people. And when we do that, we grieve the spirit who is among us, who witnesses and sees. We grieve the Lord. And then also, Paul tells us, we are placing ourselves in judgment that God will come and we will not receive the judgment of the world which is being cast into hell. But God will discipline. Why? Because he loves us. Why? Because he's going to make a statement. Why? Because he wants us to know that we're on the wrong track, that when he, any good parent would discipline a child. And he's pointing us always, whether by discipline or approval, where is he pointing us? He's pointing us to the cross. What Paul is telling the people here is that we remember Christ rightly. First, by remembering him. Secondly, by doing things in remembrance of who he is, not who we are. And then we remember him rightly by taking responsibility for our sins. And he calls them each one and says, before you gather for the Lord's Supper, each one of you look in your hearts 
and examine yourself because you have the Spirit of God and you have the Word of God. And use this rule and check your hearts and see where you stand with the Lord. It's something that unbelievers can't do. And he says, if you don't do it, the Lord will do it for you. And he points to the fact that there was illness in this church and there was even death in this church as God's judgment for the, their behavior. Now, we have to handle this carefully, okay? This is not some general principle. This is the Apostle Paul speaking directly to the Corinthian church. I don't go and phone up Lance Quinn and say, Lance, you know, you've got a bad, bad back, so, you know, you must be sinning, so you better repent. The purpose of this instruction is for each one of us to examine our own hearts, Okay, not to go around and think about the person in the, in, in the seat next to us. It's for us to examine our own hearts. But this also is a gift from the Lord, a gift of grace, that we have the opportunity to come to him during our times and seasons together at the Lord's Supper and receive his forgiveness. Because the purpose of this whole passage is to point us to the fact that as we come to the Lord's Supper together, we have the opportunity to celebrate the fact that we're forgiven. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness that we have an advocate before the Father, Christ Jesus. All of these things have been made available to us and that we have the opportunity to be united and right with the Lord because of his grace. And because of that, we have this opportunity to be right with one another. And we have this opportunity to have a unity among ourselves which the world cannot even hope to have and will never have. Why? Because it's the bond of the Spirit who comes in among us. And as we hear his word and as we walk in his spirit and as we examine ourselves and we come to the Lord, and we come with repentant hearts, and we take responsibility for our sins, what happens? It's the other half of Psalm 51, the first half. Lord, against you, you alone have I sinned. What's the other half? The return of the joy of his salvation, and the opportunity to teach transgressors in the way, and the opportunity to come in the assembly, and celebrate, and experience that unity before God and before man. Paul closes this out and says to them finally as he walks them through and says, you need to take responsibility for your actions. You need to take responsibility before your sins before the Lord. And you need to remember Christ rightly. He closes it up in verse 33 and 34 and says something that seems remarkably simple. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. You know, when you look at the challenges of being united together, be it a family, a workplace, a Bible study, or a community, how often is the issue manifested in our having a difficulty in waiting for one another? The idea of really waiting is also another idea of remembering, and it's an idea of love. It's, a, it's, an idea, it's the notion of remembering, why am I waiting? Do we wait? Is my wife willing to wait for me as I struggle to repent in certain areas of my life to be a better husband, to be a better provider, or to be a better protector? Or is it a situation of saying, I told you once, why aren't you getting it right right now? 
It's an issue of remembering what Christ did for us. Because what did Christ do for us? While we were yet sinners, Christ what? Died for us. How long did Jesus bear with the disciples? How often did the disciples get it right straight out of the gate? How often was there conflict among the disciples in saying who would be the greatest among them? What did Jesus do? Did he slap them around? Did he basically throw down? Did he say, look, you didn't get it the first time. Get lost. I'm moving on. I'm picking another 12 guys who are going to get it a little faster than you. No. He was gentle. He was patient. He was loving. At the times that it really got out of hand, he basically used a firm word. All of those are aspects of grace. And when we remember Christ rightly, when we come to the Lord's table, we remember that he's given all of that to us and more. So often we're preoccupied with everybody else's sins. Paul is saying, look at your own sins. Let's stop looking at everybody else's sins. And let's consider for a moment, how long-suffering has the Lord been with each one of us? How long did he wait for each of us? How long did he wait for us to be saved? How much sin was there? Think of the sins in your life. Think of, just pick one. And think of how long the Savior patiently bore with you until perhaps there was a Bible study or a brother who came alongside who spoke a word and the light bulb went off. And you realize, wow, not only am I a sinner now, basically I've been sinning in this particular area for a long period of time. How gracious, how kind, how winsome, how gentle is the Savior who pursues sinners. This is who we're remembering when we drink the cup. This is who we're remembering when we take the bread. And Paul is coming when he's saying, wait for one another. He's talking about food. He's talking about dinner. But the principle applies to everything, does it not? Men, should we not be waiting for our wives? Should we not be waiting for our children? Maybe they're struggling in a particular area. Maybe they're not getting it right. Maybe there's an area of angerness or bitterness or rebellion. Maybe we've told them 20 times and we're getting frustrated and upset that they're not hearing what we have to say. But what was Christ's example? Are we praying for them? Are we interceding on their behalf? Are we being gentle? Are we exercising self-control? Are we realizing that maybe we're not addressing the issue because they're not getting it? And maybe we have to look at things differently or maybe we need some external help. Maybe we need an older godly man to come alongside us and say, look, what, what am I not getting here in this situation? How can I be patient? How can I be loving? How can I be like Christ? And yet, how can I be firm at the same time and not condone sin? Are we being that way with one another? Care group leaders, are we being that way with the members of our flock? Shepherds, elder nominees, are we being that way with one another? And are we being that way with the flock? Jesus talks about a celebration of the one coin and the one sheep that is rescued. And I will tell you what I struggle with as a shepherd is that that one sheep or that one coin who is just very difficult, who sees or insists on butting heads with me on every step of the way, if they walk away, say, they chose. And when I do that, I'm forgetting the body, am I not? Because think of your family. If there's a conflict, how excusable is it if I walk out of the house? That's it. My son's been... Messing up my books for 200 years. This situation is intolerable. I've asked him 200 times, basically. We've walked through this. Son, when you're 18, if you can't get it together, I'm going to show you the door. We need to go our separate ways. We can't live under the same house together. What would you say of Mark Chen? 
Hopefully you'd think I'm about this big. I'm only five foot two, but you probably think I'm basically two inches, right? We don't walk out on family. We're called basically to be together as one heart and as one spirit and to be together. And family is not confined to these walls. And so Paul, when he says, wait for one another, he's pointing to everything that Christ is and everything that Christ has done for us. What's the beauty and what's the hope? The beauty and the hope is that true repentance begins with remembering Christ. And as we begin to remember Christ, and we remember him rightly, it's the Spirit of God that does the work and the grace. And we're able to obey, and we're able to walk in the Spirit, even as Christ has commanded us to. And that there is a love and an ability and a power to endure great suffering and great difficulty, to do as Jesus did, to even embrace Judas and refer to him as a friend, to cross lines, to minister to one another, to love the unlovely, to do the difficult things. That's what grace is. And that's what Christ did for us. And the beauty of the Lord's Supper is that when we examine our hearts and we confess our sins and we repent, The joy of our salvation is given to us and we are given the opportunity to celebrate a unity that the world does not know. And of course, the exhortation is is that we do this every time we gather together to take the Lord's Supper, that we do it in remembrance of Him, that this is something that happens frequently and that it's a unity that builds and grows and that the unity that is given is a unity from Christ and not a unity from this world. That's a great hope. That's a great future, and that's a great reality. And as we look at the 12 disciples and all the bickering and challenging and all the difficulties they had, you know what? After the cross, they got the message. And against all odds and all circumstances, they were able to make it work and make a go of it. And we stand here today because of the Spirit of God, because of the grace of His gospel, because of who He is. So what's the challenge for you, myself, each one of us, for the elder nominees, for the people, and I know on the tip of our tongue we're thinking, where is unity going to come from? It comes from repentance. It comes from taking ownership of our sins. It comes from remembering Christ rightly. And that's what I'm going to exhort you to do today as we gather together for the Lord's Supper. In a few minutes, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. I hope this will be a celebration unlike others for you. I feel comfortable in the words I've given because I know if I'm speaking on James's behalf that as James looks at this transition in his life, the one thing he'd want us to do is to look to the cross and look to Christ and that we would find a unity during times of change and transition. That though a shepherd is leaving and though those are great opportunities for Satan to come in and sow his tares and create division and disunity among us and it becomes very easy in the absence of a shepherd who's nurtured and loved you and given in many ways his life for you that it's very easy for us to become divided to say I'm for James, I'm for Mark, I'm for James, I'm for Mark it can be easy for those things to happen but I know what James would want and if I can speak on his behalf and he can tell me if I'm not speaking on his behalf but that we would look to Christ and not men and that we would remember Christ rightly. And when we remember Christ rightly, you know what? 
We're going to remember one another rightly. But when we forget Christ, it's going to become impossible for us to remember one another properly. So as we gather together for the supper, I want to take a few minutes before we start right now of silence. And I want you to examine your hearts. I want you to hear Paul's Paul's commands here and his instruction that we would remember Christ rightly first for everything that he's done for you, for your marriages, for your family, for your salvation, and the salvation that you have as a wretched sinner who has been given new life in Christ from the King of glory. And then I want you to examine your heart because we all have blind spots and we all have ways that we rub one another the wrong way, wives, family, children, one another, and examine yourself and come before the Lord and realize we're not here to beat one another up or beat ourselves up, that we have an advocate, Christ Jesus, and if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because of the testimony of the cross, because his death is greater than our sin. And let's go to him. And then when we open, let's celebrate the Lord's Supper together with James and our family together, no matter what happens tomorrow and no matter what happens yesterday, let's do it as one people in Christ. Let's pray for a few minutes and then I will close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are and what you've done on our behalf, Lord. We thank you that you did not wait till we were perfect or good to love us and to save us. That while we were yet sinners, you died for us. And you said on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You had mercy and grace on us and that's what's changed us and that's what's poured new life into us and that's what's made us children of the new covenant and children of grace. And so we thank you for that, Lord. And we come before you and ask for your forgiveness, Lord Jesus, for ways that we have not remembered you rightly, for ways that we have not remembered one another rightly. Lord, forgive us for these things. You know that we are frail men of dust and you know that we are sinners and that apart from you, we can do nothing right and nothing good. And so forgive us for these things, Lord Jesus. Grant us, Lord, the gift of your repentance. Lord, may we make it our aim to remember you rightly and to remember one another rightly. May we make it our aim to wait for one another, Lord, the least among us, the most difficult among us, the most challenging, the most contentious, Lord. May we love you and may we love one another with a love that comes from the Spirit that is gentle, kind, and compassionate, and yet at the same time takes ownership of sin and is firm and deals with sin in the only way that it can be dealt with at the foot of the cross, Lord, a burden that only you can carry. Lord, we pray as a people, as we come together before you, thank you for this gift of the Lord's Supper that we have this opportunity to come together and receive the testimony and the memory, Lord Jesus, of the body that you gave for us and the blood that you shed and the cup that you drank on our behalf, that we might have new life in you and that we might live no longer for ourselves, but that we might live for you and that we might live as one people in Christ because of you. Now and every day until you return. In your name we pray, amen.